0: Good morning. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. Today we'll be reading Mark 1, 40 through 45. That's page 488 in the Blue Bibles. And if you don't have a Bible or you need one, feel free to take one. They're our gift to you. Um, that's going to be Mark one forty. Hear the word of the Lord. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news, so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. Thus says God's word.
1: Through one of sixteen chapters. So, <laughs> so we told you in the uh, in the beginning. To buckle your seatbelt and just get comfortable because we don't want to miss, uh, anything that God has to say to us in the book of Mark. And so I'm hoping that you, as we've done this series, have been able to, uh, uh, you know, get some things that, that uh, the, the, the Holy Spirit's been able to speak to you. Um, the goal of the preaching of the word is always transformation, whether it transforms people who are lost without Christ into saints and believers by hearing of the word, or whether it takes us who uh, who maybe believe in Christ and yet are in so desperate need of the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit, the agency through which God does that is his word. And so his word is always valuable to us. So Over the last two weeks in this series, we've seen Jesus revealed to Israel as someone who taught a new doctrine and he taught it with authority, which was unlike the scribes of his day who taught in the synagogues. Um, They preferred to debate endlessly about the minutia of the Mosaic law and the rabbinic traditions of their day. Um, But Jesus' message was the arrival of the kingdom of God, something entirely different. And he confirmed the arrival of the kingdom of God. He proved that something new had come among them uh, by performing miraculous signs. And so that's what we've been kind of focusing on over the last two weeks. And so uh, after a full day of of teaching and performing miracles. He cast a a devil out of a man in the synagogue. He healed Simon's mother-in-law. He uh, had people gather at his door and he healed them all night long. After all of this, Jesus chose not to set up camp to be the local miracle worker in Capernaum, like some of us probably would have. And he made it clear that the signs that he performed, which were real and which were important, but were secondary. He made it clear that they were secondary to the message that he preached. The purpose of the signs was to confirm the authenticity of his identity, which would in turn lend strength to his message. Many people today, uh, throughout our country, throughout the West, throughout the world, for that matter, wouldn't care at all what message, if any message, was being preached if the blind would see and the deaf would hear and the dead were raised and demons were cast out. But this is the difference between modern so-called miracle workers and Jesus. Jesus knew that physical miracles in a fallen world could never be anything more than temporary. Jesus knew that. So he insisted that his preaching and not his miracles would be the main thing. He, he refused to build celebrity on his power poured out at the expense of his truth established here that that was the main thing to to preach the message of the gospel why was this so important well paul tells us very clearly in the first chapter of romans why this was so important to jesus he says for i am not ashamed of the gospel for this reason it what is the message the gospel the truth it is the power of god for salvation To everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. See, the people that were crowding Jesus in Mark chapter 1, they thought the healing was the power of God unto salvation. They thought the deliverance was the power of God unto salvation. And they missed the point that it was the message. It was the proclamation of the gospel. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. That was the power of God. To full salvation... Healings provided a temporal affirmation of what would ultimately and fully be accomplished by Jesus for all eternity. Now, um, I can prove this, that Peter, uh, if we look at Peter's first epistle, his first letter... He makes this exact same point in 1 Peter chapter 2. But what he does in that passage, in the very end of that chapter, he quotes Isaiah's prophecy that we usually will attach to our prayer for healing for people. He says this that he, he says uh, he quotes Isaiah saying that by Jesus' wounds or by his stripes we have been healed. But if you look at that passage. Every word in that passage, there is absolutely no reference that Peter is making to physical healing. None whatsoever. Look at, look at it. In fact, I'm using it as my benediction today so you can hear it yourself. What he is emphasizing by saying that Jesus healed us by his wounds is the eternal rescue of our full being, of our, of our, of our inner man, of our, of our souls and our spirits. So, for those of you that are pulling a rock out of your purse or out of your coat pocket, uh, ready to cast it at me, I want to make something very clear. Am I saying this morning that Jesus never heals people physically and he only cares about our souls? Absolutely not am I saying this. We. Pray in faith for the sick, as the Bible instructs us to, to bring the sick before the elders of the church, lay hands on them. We, we pray, we do that. And we have seen people in our fellowship miraculously recover at times. I, I won't take time to tell you the stories, but there have been some incredible stories of God healing people in our midst. But what we believe as a core foundation of the doctrine of Northridge Life Church is that two things about God. Number one, he knows what is best for us and he always does what is best for us. You agree with that? That no matter what, if God immediately heals somebody of cancer, that's what's best for them. If God allows them to carry that affliction for His glory, that's what's best. And we believe that. And we're firm about that. He he does what's best. He knows what's best, whether He heals our physical pain or whether He sanctifies us through our afflictions. What God does in any given situation is best. There are truly no such things as unanswered prayers. They're just often not answered the way we wish that they were answered. Jesus' primary mission is not to rescue the world from cancer. It is not to rescue the world from diabetes. It is not, unfortunately for some of us, to rescue the world from old age. But His mission is to rescue the world from the ravages of sin. Which includes all that stuff. And the progression of the kingdom of God that Jesus came proclaiming means that eventually, by stages, all creation will be made new. Every bit of it. And all of those other things will be gone, but it begins invisibly. The progression of the kingdom of God begins invisibly with souls, even if our bodies in this present age must continue to suffer pain and experience persecution because we live in a fallen world. These things, these realities about pain and suffering do not limit the kingdom of God. Amen? But in today's text, uh, I, Ginger accuses me of using this phrase I'm about to use a lot. I said all that to say this. I, being a preacher, I have to set up things with 15 minutes of conversation before I get to the point. But in today's text, I said all that to say this. In today's text, we see an incredible compassion that moves Jesus to relieve physical suffering, as he sometimes still does, and I'll, I'll maintain that. But we also see a vivid depiction of his deeper mission to rescue the world from the corruption that sin has introduced into it. So, the beginning of our text, or actually the end of last week's text, Mark tells us that after Jesus left Capernaum, he went throughout the villages of Galilee and he preached in their synagogues and particularly that he cast out devils. And his fame in the region of Galilee was exploding. I mean, it was, people were finding out who Jesus was and were making a beeline to him. In fact, so many people were coming, they were hearing of his power and seeking him out that, that he was being crowded everywhere that he went. In verse 40, the first uh, verse of our text today, we're told that a leper approached Jesus. And we're told that he worshipfully bowed or kneeled before him. And, and he came with an earnest, faith-filled petition to this one that he had heard has the ability to work miracles. He said, if you will, you can make me clean. Now, let's pause for a moment and consider leprosy. There is nothing, and I mean nothing, in our modern world that can compare with the disgrace, the shame, the terror brought on by a diagnosis of one of the many skin conditions that were lumped together under the name of leprosy. The the diagnosis of leprosy amounted to a death sentence. It's like your life is over when you receive the diagnosis of leprosy. Lepers in the first century were literally dead men walking. It was over. It was done. They were outcasts from family life. They were outcasts from social life. They were outcasts from religious life. There was no uh, life. There was no community that was flowing into them. There were no medical treatments for this disease. You were just, you know, if you found out you had leprosy, you just get your affairs in order, you're done. You're going to die. And in in Jewish culture, it was the task of the priest to diagnose the condition of leprosy. You went to the priest and he would examine you and determine whether what you had was actually leprosy or not. If you want to do this this afternoon, Leviticus 13 and 14 lay out detailed instructions to the priest on how to make such a diagnosis. Now in those chapters... Don't get so caught up in that you, you miss this. You know, we think of the law as being a symbol of God's harshness and the gospel being a symbol of, a symbol of his mercy. Not true. If you've, been, if you've been coming Wednesday night, you've been finding out that's a false assumption. But, we, but in those chapters, in Leviticus 13 and 14, we actually see the incredible mercy of God in that... That he differentiates with great detail between actual leprosy, what should be diagnosed as leprosy, and a normal pimple or normal baldness, both of which could be easily misdiagnosed as leprosy. And so he get, lays out uh, the, the, the determination of how you determine what this actually is that's happening. And that's important. It's important to know that about how God dealt with his diagnosis of leprosy because the price of being diagnosed as a leper was incredibly high. Everything, and I mean everything, changed from the moment that somebody heard the awful news that they were a leper. Their wealth or their power could not protect them from the horrific consequences. A leper's fate was sealed immediately. Let me read to you what the law, the law of God, the holy law of God says in cases of leprosy. In Leviticus 13, verse 45, it says, The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes... And let the hair of his head hang loose. So he has to rip his clothes and and let his hair just hang, uh, you know, messy because uh, you know he what they want everybody who sees them to know the condition that he has. He shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. So you have to declare your condition to everybody in a crowd. There's no hiding it. He shall there were no HIPAA laws, by the way, in, in the, the ancient world. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. The next line is very important. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside of the camp. Lepers were completely cut off from the congregation. There was no, except for their family, except for their spouse, except for their children. No, they were completely, utterly cut off from the congregation. But there was an even more, uh, a larger element, if you were, to the curse of leprosy. In the Jewish mind, leprosy had an association with it of God's punishment on sin. Throughout the Old Testament, we see this. Miriam, who was Moses' sister, was stricken with leprosy when she displeased the Lord. Naaman was a commander of Israel's enemies, and he was stricken with leprosy. Gehazi, who was Elisha's servant, was given leprosy for his greed and his envy. The family of Joab was also cursed with leprosy because of Joab's treachery. King Uzziah was stricken with leprosy because of his pride. So over and over and over, we see this in the Old Testament. So by the time we get to Jesus' day, the assumption is that if you were a leper, you were under the judgment of God as a punishment for your transgressions. And surely, surely this man who came kneeling before Jesus... For, and asking for healing, had often been reckoned as a notorious sinner. I mean, why else would this happen to him? It's a notorious sinner. And it didn't matter whether his actual sins outweighed everyone else's in the crowd... That's just the determination they made. We see this with Jesus' own disciples once when a man was, they wandered, uh, came up on a man who was blind and the first question out of their mouth is, Jesus, why is he blind? Did he sin or did his parents sin? Well, the same assumption would have been made with this man who had leprosy. And so the law commanded him to remain completely separate from all others. So, even in coming to Jesus for any reason, He was ignoring all of the strict religious codes of ethics that were commanded in the law and by the rabbis. He was not supposed to go anywhere near Jesus. But he did. He did come. I like to imagine that scene in my mind. You know, Paul, uh, Marcus is not given to as much detail as say Luke is, but he just gives us overviews, quick snapshots of what Jesus did. But I like to imagine the crowd. This, there, there's, We're told uh, a couple times in, in Mark chapter 1 that crowds are surrounding Jesus. That he, His fame is spreading so fast. And I imagine this leper making a beeline to Jesus and the crowd just kind of splitting like the Red Sea, just to, to stay as far away from him as he could. Because of his condition. And think about it. It, it, He couldn't have snuck up on Jesus like the woman with the issue of blood. He couldn't hide it. His clothes were torn. His hair was disheveled. Open running sores were seen on his body. The people of the town had often heard him cry out, unclean, unclean. But while the crowd scattered, got out of the way, didn't want anything to do with this man, Jesus stood firm And let him approach. To those watching, it it wasn't just a violation for the unclean man to approach Christ, but Jesus also, by the law, was to remain separated from him so as not to be polluted himself. But that's not what happened. Mark tells us that Jesus was moved with pity now this doesn't mean that jesus felt sorry for the man like you might feel sorry for a homeless man raising money on the street corner he, it wasn't as simple as that that this this term this this phrase moved with pity means that he was literally compelled driven if you were by compassion the greek indicates that christ Yearned for him from his innermost being. is like from his guts. He just felt like he had to do something for this man. What a heart. That Christ has. For the helpless. For the forgotten. For the outcast. For the rejected. While all the world scatters. They're repulsed and afraid. Jesus, by his incredible heart, is drawn nearer and nearer to the most despicable, the most despised of our communities. Next we read something even way more incredible considering the Mosaic Law. We read that Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. You may have read this story a thousand times in the Bible and read right past that. But that is worthy of our notice. Jesus touched this leper. leper. And the reason that this was remembered by Peter, who probably is the one who told Mark about it, is because no one touched lepers. The law taught that if a clean person... A ceremonially clean person touches something unclean, something that is sick, something that is unholy, or something that is dead, what happens? Well, that they themselves become unclean. So why would Jesus, who is perfectly clean, why would he touch this man? We saw a preview of the answer last week in the story of Jesus taking Simon's mother-in-law by the hand and healing her of her fever, of her sickness. The touch of Jesus, which Mark in his gospel mentions a lot, was his way of identifying with all the corruption of fallen humanity without ever himself becoming corrupted. He was associating with the weakness and the devastation of those he came to save. And he was offering, in in exchange for their uncleanness, he was offering his grace. Now, in the law, there's, there's something even more significant to this. Stretching out his hand and touching the man. in the law... In Leviticus, when someone brought a guilt offering to be sacrificed to make atonement for their sin, it was required in the law that the one offering the sacrifice first lay his hand on the head of the sacrifice, be it a sheep or a bull. Uh, they were, that, that animal, that innocent animal was about to die And and the person who was about to, for for whom they were about to die, had to place their hand on that animal. And they were saying in that action, they were saying, This innocent beast is taking my place, though the guilt is mine, so that I might live. See, but Christ came and... To the world as the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And He did not wait for us to lay our hands on Him. He took the initiative. He laid His hands on the guilty, on the unclean beasts like you and I. And He said, I am innocent... But I will take their sin and their shame, their disease and their pollution, and I will lay down my life so that the guilty might be fully justified, fully healed, fully forgiven. And in this way, in this way, Christ was never polluted by coming into contact with our uncleanness. On the the contrary, those he touched... So unclean, so polluted, so corrupted, those he touched became clean. So the man came to Christ, this poor leper, no plan b he had to, he had become fully convinced of the hopelessness of his case. He was never going to leave the leper colony, and so since he has no hope anywhere else in the world, he throws all of his hope on Jesus if. You will, you can. His last ditch, his last hope, the only thing he can rely on, everything else is gone. And what a joy. And this seems so empty to say it, because we can't even imagine. What a joy. What a relief. It must have been for this poor, poor man to hear Jesus answer him with faith And with tenderness of heart, with compassion, I will be clean. And immediately, as soon as the words escaped the Messiah's mouth, immediately the sores which had covered the man's skin were gone. In a very real sense, he had been born again. He had a brand new life. The old things had passed away. Everything new had come. And in a moment he passed from death to life. Not only had he been freed from his disease, but he was restored to the family of God. He could now enjoy fellowship and worship within the community. His death sentence had been reversed and he could go forth a free man. He now had value and worth and could achieve the purpose for which he was born. With all of that and the, the rejoicing that we should share with this man, the next thing that happens in this text might seem very odd. Verse 43 says, And Jesus, immediately after the Bible tells us he was immediately made clean, Jesus sternly charged him. And that word, sternly charged him, is exactly what it sounds like. There was a, a note of 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 directness and maybe even you could say anger in the way that jesus addressed him he sternly charged him and sent him away at once and he said to him see that you say nothing to anyone but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what moses commanded for a proof to them so jesus has healed this man There's no like, hey, let's have a party. There's none of that. There's no celebration. Jesus immediately dismisses him. He sends him away to the priest. Now, why would he do that? Because under the law, only the priest could could diagnose a man as being a leper, and only the priest could uh, declare a man to be restored or healed. And there are probably two reasons why Jesus insisted on him going to the priest. There was no doubt that he was healed. He didn't go because of some some question whether he was actually healed. The physical evidence was right there in front of him. But Galatians 4.4 4 tells us that Jesus was born under the law so that he could fulfill the law. He was, of course, the author of the law. But during his incarnation he was committed to fully obeying the law now this might seem like a contradiction since jesus had just touched a leper which was against the law but jesus's ministry as he said over and over in the gospels was to fetch the lost sheep of israel and so he couldn't bring this man back in um if you know if the man remained unclean and an outcast he couldn't bring him back in so he had to heal him so he could bring him back into the fold But I want to focus more on the second reason why Jesus sent him to the priest. This, I think, is more significant. Jesus instructed the man to show himself to the priest in the words of Mark for a proof to them. So my question to you is, a proof of what? Well, of course a proof of his healing, but there's more to it than that. Don't you think when this man stood before the priests in the temple being examined, most of them having probably remembered when he was originally diagnosed by them, don't you think that they probably would have had some questions that immediately raised in their mind? Like, what doctor did you go see? What drug did you take? What happened here? See, Jesus wanted to offer proof to the shepherds of Israel who by and large did not believe that the Messiah had arrived. This man would be his agent to give testimony to the fact of what had happened and with indisputable evidence standing right before their eyes that someone in their midst had the power even over leprosy. It was a proof to them that something dramatic had changed in the world. Now, this is important because I doubt very seriously that former lepers came into the temple every week having been healed of leprosy. In fact, I would wager, if I were a betting man, that not a single priest had ever pronounced a man clean from leprosy in the duration of their ministries. They probably, like uh, we all often have to do, they probably had to crack open their Bibles to Leviticus 13 and 14 and find out what the heck they were supposed to do in this moment because they didn't even know how this had happened. But see, what Jesus was doing, remember? Primary thing, the preaching. Secondary thing, the miracles. Jesus was preaching the coming of the kingdom of God by healing this man and sending him to the priest. He was saying, "Hey, guess what? Something's happened. Something's changed." They had to wrestle with what had taken place mentally, emotionally, spiritually. They had to wrestle with whose hand this miracle uh, with whose hand had performed this miracle. But while Jesus did tell the man to show himself to the priest, he also said that he was to tell no one else. Now Jesus gave the same prohibition to several other people throughout the gospels. He even gave this prohibition to unclean spirits on other occasions. Um, and this is sometimes referred to as the messianic secret. There are many reasons given as to why Christ didn't allow certain people to publish his deeds. And let me give you just two to consider. First, as I mentioned, Jesus' mission was to preach the gospel of the kingdom. But as it would probably happen in our day, when people were healed or delivered as a sign of that gospel that he was preaching and proclaiming, the miracles themselves became the centerpiece in those people's minds to the ministry of Jesus. They, they would often miss or completely ignore the underlying message that he was preaching of repent and believe in the gospel. And gathering crowds, the press upon him made preaching the gospel to those crowds even more difficult. There was one time in the gospels, a couple of times actually, where Jesus asked Peter to, to let him launch out a little bit in his boat so that he would have a platform to speak to the crowds because when they were all pressed around him, no one could hear him. But second, and, and probably more important, is to know that Christ sometimes told people don't say anything because Christ did not intend the message for everyone. Now that may sound harsh, and you may struggle with that reality, but I can prove it from the scriptures in Matthew thirteen eleven. Matthew 13 is a chapter where Jesus preaches all kinds of parables that had a level of mystery to them and he said and the disciple says why are you teaching in miracles and he said or in parables rather and he said this he said in Matthew 13:11 to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven but to them it has not been given so if you're here today and you're worried about whoa 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 what if It hasn't been given to me. And that's a great impetus for you to plead with the Lord, to open your heart, to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, to know what the message of Christ is. Because you can't know it by figuring it out. The Holy Spirit has to reveal it to you. The the New Testament tells us over and over that that is true. That the carnal mind cannot, the Bible says, understand the things of the Spirit. Only those who are spiritual can understand them. See, if Christ only gathered crowds on the basis of his miracles, come see what I can do, come come, let experience what I can do, then many would have had a, a false assurance of him on the basis of those miracles. And it would have been a false assurance because they never would have listened to the message and repented of their sin or bothered to believe in him and his larger mission. So he would give the instruction not to speak to anyone about the miracles he performed, but mostly when he did that, if you're familiar with the Gospels, it turned out just like it turned out with this fella. And this is how it turned out. Verse 45. But he, the man, the leper, went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could not and could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in the desolate places, and the people were coming to him from every quarter. Now, I don't... This man clearly disobeyed Jesus, and clearly was healed. So there's there's a lesson there that even though... Even when Jesus does a work in our life, because we're fallen, our obedience is never perfect, even though we should strive to be obedient but also give him a break on this because if Jesus transformed your life in such a manner how could you not talk about it a lot of times i'm i i, I really i kind of look at people's profession of christianity and i and i see them you know in their in their public life their public testimony giving no evidence of a change making no proclamation but like this poor man that was healed of leprosy and it only can cause me question the reality of their profession because i'm telling you when jesus makes you clean you can't keep quiet about it that's what that's what this tells me so let me sum this up This simple story, five verses, teaches us tremendous things. Tremendous things about the salvation that has been brought about for us by Jesus. As I said from the beginning of this series, it would be a shame for us to simply read the words of Mark and miss the deeper message altogether. So first, what do you take from this? We should see ourselves in this poor leper. Now, I realize that you may never have had an incurable disease, especially one that made your lives entirely shameful, entirely disgraceful. But if you understand, and more importantly, if you believe the Bible, we have all become, in its words, an unclean thing Because of the disease of sin. It's caused us to be cast out of God's presence. It's caused us to be an outsider to everything good. And like this leper, we should also associate with him in this regard. That we can't let the rules of respectable society keep us from making our way to Jesus. This man couldn't dress up his wounds or change his clothes to pretend to be anything other than what he was. A wretched outcast living under a certain sentence of death utterly hopeless. And he knew who he was and he came to Jesus anyway. Do you see yourself that way? Or do you imagine that the putridness of your flesh and its desires are not really so bad after all it's certainly not as bad as other people because we tend to see other people's corruption way more clearly than we see our own amen but the problem is here's the problem you can look at your leprosy and you can deny it you can look at your leprosy and try to you know fake it and try to pretend that it's not leprosy. But this is the problem. You have already been diagnosed by the great high priest. And he says in his word that your sins are like a scarlet stain on a linen white tablecloth. And your diagnosis, his diagnosis of your condition is your condemnation. It's a death sentence. It's hopeless. There's nothing that you can do to rescue yourself from the condemnation that the great high priest diagnosis has laid upon you. But see, if you will own the truth of your condition, if you will... Come humbly and worshipfully. If you will bow down before the one who can heal you. Man, if you can just come with words of faith bursting from your heart. If you will look into his loving eyes and say, If you will, you can make me clean. If you'll do that. He will be moved with pity for you. He won't be at all reluctant. But love for you will come welling up from the depths of His holy heart. He will yearn for you. He will be drawn by compassion to you, as unclean as you are. He will reach out. He will touch you. In your uncleanness, He will take upon His unblemished self all of your foulness. He will take from you the disease that is rotting you away from the inside. And He'll give you all of His perfection in exchange. He will make you clean. He will cause the curse of your affliction to be banished immediately. In his holy word, you'll hear him say over and over again, I am willing. Be clean. He'll give you the gift of the Holy Spirit to work all the healing you could ever need into the depths of your innermost being. You will be made brand new. You will be born. You will be born again you will see old things pass away and everything become new and then oh this is the best part the great high priest will examine you once more and with his heavenly authority he will pronounce you completely clean inviting you once again to join his family to join his kingdom to join in fellowship of daily communion with him and the saints The best part is for you that there is no further need at all for any so-called messianic secret. Let me tell you something. The secret of Jesus, the cat's out of the bag since the resurrection. There's no more need to to be hush-hush about it. In joy of your heart, you can go and proclaim to everyone what Christ has done to make you clean hoping, believing, praying that they too will say, I need to be made clean and will appeal to his mercy like you have. Would you stand with me? Father, we thank you for the word of your truth, the word of your grace. Lord, I pray that you would just help us, Lord, to see your gracious mercy towards us, Lord. Lord, may it be forbidden that any one of us would see ourselves as less than leprous, Lord God. That we would try to hide our condition, our condition that is obvious to everyone else, but more importantly, that's obvious to you, Lord God. Let us not appeal to our self-improvement and our home remedies, Lord God. But let us look to you and say, if you will, you can make me clean. Lord, I pray for the people that are here this morning, and I know they're here. I know they are. God, that have never rightly trusted in you. They've trusted in religion and ceremony, but, Lord, they've never rightly trusted in you. I ask, Lord Jesus, that you would expose them in our own eyes, Lord God. Let them hear the diagnosis of the great high priest, that they are unclean and under a death sentence, Lord. But, Lord, will you give them the gift of faith so that they come running to you, bowing before you, and say, if you will, you can make me clean. Let them feel the touch of your hand. Let them hear your words, your compassionate words. I will be clean. And then Holy Spirit, work the change in their hearts. Lord, there are some here that have truly believed, and yet, Lord, their their lives are plagued with, with pesky habits and sins that they can't seem to get free of. Lord, I pray that you would... Remind them that you are still cleansing them. That every day in your word you say to them, I will be clean. Sanctify us, Lord. Draw us into your holiness. God, let us be clean. And then, Lord, as you cleanse us, God, fill our mouth with the testimony of your goodness, of your righteousness, your holiness so that others might also believe and be transformed in believing. Thank you for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.
2: Jesus, what a friend for sinners. Jesus, lover of my soul friends may fail me foes assail me he my savior makes me whole hallelujah what a savior hallelujah what a friend saving helping keeping loving he with me to the end Jesus, what a strength in weakness Let me hide myself in Him Tempted, tried, and sometimes failing He, my strength, my victory wins. What a help in sorrow, while the billows o'er me roll. Even when my heart is breaking, He, my comfort, helps my soul. what a guide and keeper while the tempest still is high storms about me night or takes me he my pilot hears my cry I do now receive him More than all in him I find He hath granted me.
1: we could have our communion assistants come forward. Um we are just so grateful um for this opportunity to uh, receive the Lord's Supper this morning. And I just want to point out just a, a real quick thing about this um this is one of the many ways that the Lord uh touches us now. We talked about his touch in this message and when I say that I am not I'm not talking about some weird mystical thing but the the clear teaching of of scripture on this uh ordinance of the church this sacrament of the church is that this is the way that we uh uh, you know kind of uh, you know uh, re-engage in the covenant that we have with christ every week and and um and and calvin as i've said before taught that this is the means by which god gives us grace By literally connecting us with the physical body of Jesus through an action of the Holy Spirit. And so this is so much more than just a remembrance. It's so much more than a religious ceremony that we do. And so this morning, if you need healing, and I'm not, I'm not limiting that to physical healing, or I'm not, I'm not eliminating physical healing, but I'm also saying if you just need healing in the depths of your soul, Uh, Just, this is the moment to come and say, Lord, I'm, I'm receiving you by faith in this action of taking a cup and taking the bread. Um, and so I want to encourage you to do that. I also want to encourage you if, if, if I was speaking to you at the end of that message and you are not a believer, will you just remain seated while we do this? We're not trying to, to withhold something from you just for the sake of, of some kind of exclusivity that we think we have. This means nothing without the transforming work of God through the gospel. But we promise me this, if you can't in good conscience come forward, will you please, please, I'm begging you, talk to me after the service and let us us help you to know how you can know the Lord Jesus and you can know that he has pronounced you clean. We would love that opportunity. But I'm going to ask you to go ahead and come forward, receive the elements, and then we will take them together. In Matthew's Gospel, the Scriptures tell us now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Let's take the bread together. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, saying Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And I tell you that I will not drink it drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. Let's take the cup. Now let's give thanks. Father, we thank you for what you have done through Jesus. We thank you, Jesus, for what you've done in giving yourself. Holy Spirit, we thank you for applying the work of our salvation to us, causing us to be made clean through the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. May we always carry it in our remembrance and be grateful to you for what you have done. We thank you for once again affirming your covenant with us through this ordinance. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you would, place your hands in a receiving position, and I want to read you the aforementioned, uh, benediction from first Peter chapter two, beginning in verse 21 for to this, you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might live to, or uh, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit.